Hey folks, Justin Jackson here, back with another mega profitable case study. These are uh, a series of interviews I'm doing on profitable founders, many of them solo founders, uh, and they're doing everything from running SaaS businesses to today's guest, Nick DeSabato, who's running a productized service called Draft Revise. And Nick had tons of great advice for building a profitable business, and they're all not what you would think. They were all unexpected, and I can't wait for you to get into this interview. Uh, I also want to make sure you don't miss any of the future interviews. So go to megamaker.co slash profit, megamaker.co slash profit, put your email address in there, and you will get all of the future case studies as well. I'm doing write-ups on these. And eventually, this will be a course on how to bring your business from just break even to earning cash that stays in the business uh, and that you can invest in growth or invest in yourself if you want. So head over there, megamaker.co slash profit. If you're already on my newsletter, you're already on the list. All right, let's get into the interview with Nick. And you can definitely do that. It seems yeah. one one more personal thing before we get started, but it seems like you you've been very um, what's the word I'm looking for now? Very purposeful about building community in Chicago. Now, did that yes. happen as a byproduct of you growing up there? Like these are lifelong friendships you've had. Or is this like something in your adult life, you move back from North Carolina and you, you were just very like purposeful in saying, I'm going to help foster community or be a part of community? Like how did that grow? You would think a lot of people have asked me that question and you are the first. Oh, interesting. Uh, and that's a fantastic question. I think it came about over the past like five or six years and it probably dovetailed with the um, – I think the beginning of it was actually you could draw a through line between my focus on local community in Chicago and um, – this is going to sound so crazy, but the Kickstarter project that I ran in 2009 for my first book hmm. because I had to have so many people come out of the woodwork to back it. Two-thirds of the backers of my first book were from Chicago, inside wow. the city Chicago, not just like – that doesn't even count my parents or suburbs or people I knew that like went to college nearby here. Like, yeah. um, it wow. was like the the top ten zip codes all began with six oh six. Yeah, for shipping. Wow. And um, and so it was it was very much this like local focus. And then I realized like people. Well, people cared about the work, which is great, but then there's kind of this what now, and I realize, oh, wow, like I can actually like ping a lot of people and they'll do stuff. Mm -hmm. 
and they'll have fun and I'll have fun and it will like make something. Yeah. And so that, you know, that also happened right at the, the time when I was I moved to the direct center of a neighborhood that then became the cool neighborhood. Gotcha. And so I had the best located apartment with the biggest backyard and I could throw very good parties. Yeah. And that happened like a couple of months after Cadence and Slank came out. And um, and I lived there for five and a half years and then moved into this house which is now in the center of the next cool neighborhood. Nice. And I'm not leaving. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's, uh, a, there's yeah. a few things there, isn't there? There's like, you kind of got woken up by the yeah. support. Yeah. Like folks were, you saw that there was people around. And then um, it's interesting because so much of community, like genuine local community has to do with proximity it seems, and the fact that you had a, you were in a neighborhood that people wanted to go to, and it, it makes it a lot easier to like these pictures you paint of people texting you because they're on your your doorstep and they want to drink some beers or something. That happened because I was in the middle of that neighborhood, right? Yeah, like yeah. yeah. So much of it is proximity, and obviously you being open to it, but the. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting because maybe like definitely if you were now I'm gonna just pull something out of my head, but if you were in Melrose Park, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Or let's go further out. What's that would have never happened. That would have. <laughs> we, no, what would happen if I weren't? <laughs> uh, Wheaton is also the fundamentalist Christian suburb, so there would uh, have to be a lot of life changes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, even if I were in Albany park, which is up Kedzie, like, but it's on the other side of 1994 and it's off of a different train line. Like it's, it's two miles. Yeah. It is such a small distance and you would not, I would not have had access to the same community. I would, I mean, I mean, I would have had really good access to falafel and that would have been about it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, and that's so weird to think about. Like, th- I think it was a large part of it was writing cadence and moving into that apartment at the same time. Yeah. And then realizing, okay, well, also as I'm getting older, there's a focus less on like being a party house and more on like actually thinking, how do we help out our community? And so not only did I move on t- into that apartment in a really good block, but like that block was full of bike activists. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, I th- I actually found that uh, like genuine community, like uh, real people, really connecting in a local way, is actually one of the few utopian dreams that ends up being as good as you dream it. Like I remember like mm. dreaming about that and feeling like, man, I bet you that would be amazing if there was like even a sliver of purposeful people that you can count on that you know actually do care about you that you're you're involved in each other's lives in a meaningful way that must be amazing and then when you actually even when you get it even if it's just a piece of it it's actually as good as you dreamed it whereas other things like money and cars and um, even business i found have not been as satisfying as um as that like it actually is as good yeah. as you think it might be 
And it's good no matter what position you are in the community. Like, mm-hmm. if you're the connector, mm-hmm. that's great. If you're just a participant, that's great. If you're the one that's like one level away from the connector, that's kind of helping the connector, that's also great. Like there's mm-hmm. never a situation where there's um, anybody's getting like taken advantage of or everybody like yearns to be the connector or like yearns to have the party house. They're grateful to have their own space and then come to the house or whatever. Yeah. And um, I think that's a part of why it can be like almost utopic like you're saying yeah right like it can be um how do i put this like this very egalitarian situation where everyone is respected and, and appreciated and yeah. um god hold that close like why else <laughs> yeah. do you live in a giant city there's so much stressful garbage about living in a giant city right like yeah. so have that you know like yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, that's great. Now let's talk about business, which matters, right. but doesn't matter as much. And uh, eventually, I want to know how much money you're making. That's okay. the whole point of this, of this interview. Uh, okay. But before that, I'm going to need to know, and the listeners, whoever you know is going to see this, is going to need to know, what is your business? So maybe give us a little background on Draft and what it is and what you do. Sure. So I call Draft a interaction design consultancy, and uh, that has meant a lot of things over the years. Uh, the thing that I do right now that I'm probably most known for is what I call research-driven A-B testing for uh, e-commerce businesses. So uh, it's research-driven because I put a lot of UX research into finding the right ideas that are more likely to win. Um, it's A-B testing. That's duh. And then e-commerce businesses also duh. Mm-hmm. So uh, in practice, that means I spend a lot of time writing and talking to customers and analyzing heat maps like you know that's what I'm be doing after this call and Mm -hmm. a lot of different awesome things um, usually for online stores Um, sometimes it ends up manifesting in the form of books or courses that sort of stuff so I consider myself kind of half educator half consultant gotcha yeah and your your delivery model for your consulting services I think is quite unique Um, can you maybe talk a bit about that like you you do i'm i'm guessing that at some point you've done like regular consulting where you're like this is my hourly rate and then you know you charge people how how do you do it now and maybe talk about how you got here sure so uh, let's talk about how I got here first, because I used to do the kind of like I make wireframes and you pay me and it went from an hourly rate to a per project rate and I would just give deadlines and there you would go and everybody was happy, but it was materially the same deliverable for the same type of company, whatever. Um Eventually, mid July 2013, I kind of stepped back and was wondering like, what is the Venn diagram overlap of UXE things that I can do? Because I have an interaction design background. I handle the layout and behavior of software and things I can sell on monthly retainer. Well, mm-hmm. it's not wireframes, which is the like hello world of interaction design, because what do you do? Get the homepage and are like, stay tuned next month for the product <laughs> page. Like that makes no sense. It's a holistic package. Um, and it's not IA, and it's kind of not research because people aren't really willing to pay for that, unfortunately. Um, but it is, it could be analytics and A-B testing, right? Because A-B testing is an ongoing optimization, and you're essentially measuring the economic impact of a design decision. That mm-hmm. is fundamentally what A-B testing is. And I'm a designer, so I can screw with that. That's great. Let's do it. 
put up a marketing page. Don't think anything of it. Um, and then a fellow named Patrick McKenzie, who is well known on the Internet for everything at this point. He runs Stripe Japan at this point. Um, <laughs> he wrote, I think, a 7000 word blog post about how it was one of the greatest marketing pages he had ever seen, which like, <laughs> no, that's. <laughs> far too much but very flattering uh my server crashed and i sold out within a week um wow. and i've been doing that and it's been sold out in some form or another ever since it's actually come to the point where i almost never the last time i publicly announced a slot was available was two and a half years ago because i just post to like my secret insider list or like nudge colleagues that i have a slot available and then just word comes in and somebody gloms onto it yeah um so I only have the the model is basically I have a fixed number of slots uh, that has been slowly decreasing over the years of clients that I can have at any given point. And on a formerly monthly, now quarterly basis, you pay me money. I run a certain number of A-B tests for you. While those A-B tests are running, I am researching what to test next. That involves looking at your analytics determining any revenue leakers, taking a look at your heat maps, running surveys for your customers, um, getting people literally on the phone and asking them non-leading questions about how they found out about this product and what objections they had and what problems they had on the checkout, fixing usability errors, all of those sorts of things, all the stuff that you really wish you should be doing on, on your business and don't touch with a 10-foot pole because you have better stuff to do. I do it. It's great. <laughs> then I make you money. That's such a great, like, that's a really great um, sales pitch. Like, all those things you listed that a lot of businesses wish they were doing but aren't doing. How, because right. part of running a, a profitable company is understanding or at least discovering what people want. And right. Uh, I've recently made the distinction, and some people disagree with me on the semantics of this, but I've recently made the distinction that uh, between what people want and what you think people need. So one on one side is very um, kind of uh, like a doctor. Like sometimes we think we're the doctor and like we just look at the patient. We go, oh, I can see what you need. What you need is more vitamins. But the patient, you've got this problem. Yeah. Out yeah. comes the iPhone. And here's this magical miracle product, you know, like, yeah. 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 And so how did you discuss? Was it like some people just do stumble into it? How did you figure out what people actually wanted? You discounted a lot of other things. Like you said, ah, I can't do this on an ongoing like homepage design on an ongoing basis. Nobody actually will pay for research. Was it trial and error? How did you figure out what people actually wanted? Um, uh, this is, I, I don't know if I'm going to offer a very comprehensive answer on this, but I will try. Okay. Um, a lot of listening to the community, surrounding myself with people who were strongly opinionated, um, paying attention to like actual problems that people were feeling and trying to see what I can square up with my own talents, the fact that I run a design consultancy and I am a designer with expensive problems that businesses are broadly feeling and know it, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't have to do the legwork of constantly educating them about it. Yeah. Um, because I think that the, 
the result with A-B testing, like I came in on A-B testing right when it became the hotness, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this cool and sexy thing that I was glomming myself onto and going really big in on. Yeah. Um, so there was a very big right place, right time thing with Draft Revise. Yeah. I think it's sold out in, in that way because I came up with this idea and then everybody started doing it. Because if you look for monthly productized consulting A-B testing services, there are hundreds now. People email me a couple times a week being like, I made this marketing page. Are you okay with this? I'm like, well, yes, but it's a word-for-word recopy of Draft Revise's <laughs> marketing page. Could you maybe please write it in your own words and not plagiarize me? And they're like, okay, we changed three things. And they're like, I'm like, fine. Just <laughs> and that happens to be routinely because people saw a thing that they viewed was um, – it, it was compelling to clients and solved an expensive problem for them. Yeah. I mean, it might've been compelling to clients because it solved an expensive problem for them. Yeah. But that's kind of, it was finding, okay, well here, here's this tool set here. Are all these problems that people are feeling, they want to do AB testing and I'm a designer so I can figure this out. Yeah. Um, and, how, uh, how long before, it was a lark. I, I, and, and sorry, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but how like how long did it take? Because you said 2013. This is when you were thinking. Were you doing? Uh, did you have an agency before that? Like, were you doing freelancing before that? How many years of? Yes. How many years in the wilderness did you have? Draft was. Uh, it started in February 2012. Okay. So, and I had, uh, and I basically started with full-time jobs at agencies and stuff like that in 2006. Okay. So I've been in the industry for a long time and I went independent a good year and a half before I even launched any sort of productized consulting engagement, anything around AB testing. Yeah. Um, this is, this is the secret. I ran two AB tests in my entire life when I launched draft revise, I was like, <laughs> I'll get, I'll learn this. It's cool. <laughs> and I did. But like, I just, I did not understand the full ramifications of what it is I was doing and got way in over my head very, very quickly. (laughs) I would have done a lot more forethought before launching that marketing page if I hadn't thought like, well, it's, uh, this is hilarious to people who are actually, you know, paying for draft revise right now. It's, it's $1,950 for the first three months. It's 650 a month. That's a really big involvement. Mm -hmm. It's going to take people a long time to really pull the trigger on that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you uh, saw right away that yeah. you were maybe underpriced. I was I was very underpriced. <laughs> and and people got grandfathered in. I never hiked the rate of people and a couple of people stayed on for two, two and a half years and they were great clients. Like I I'm very, very grateful for that. But uh yeah, no, I I kept them on. I think the other thing that a lot of folks miss is because I'm, I'm trying to, you know, part of me is like part of this interview is talking to folks who have a product or a service and they are making revenue and they are close to profitability, hopefully, or profitable and they want to get more profitable. But there's this other group of people who are still waiting for that thing or and they're frustrated and um or they've started something and it it just is not profitable they've been working on it for a long time 
It's just not profitable. And I think the part of the frustration is sometimes going like, how did Nick come up with that idea? Like, how, how come he's so lucky? But when you go back far enough and you go, well, he started des- with agencies in 2006 and started seeing how yeah. real companies spend their money and started seeing like, he knew what it was like to be in a client meeting and try to explain to the client that, uh, you know, educate the client first. Like, no, this is actually a better design. Uh, like, this conforms to better design principles. And you were able to see sometimes putting a lot of work into educating a client doesn't actually give you the payoff that you want, right? You must have right, been noticing right. things as you were going along. Yeah. And I think there's, um, I mean, there's a like possibly apocryphal story of uh, somebody approaches Picasso on a Central Park bench and and they're like, you're Picasso. And he's like, yes. And he's like, will you do this draw? Will you draw my portrait? And he's like, sure. Pulls off a page in his sketchbook, draws a thing, hands it to him. And he's like, that'll be $10,000. He's like, what? You just did that in five minutes. He's like, no, I did it in the 40 years of experience that I had. Yeah. That led me to be Picasso and led you to recognize me on a park bench. And you never saw any of that, but it culminated in this, in this sketch. And um, whether or not that story is true, I think there is something to it, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much subtle, there's so many subtle things in one's career, not my career, not your career, anybody's career that factor into the relationships you've developed, the skills you've gotten, um, and and how much uh, interest you have in solving this particular problem. I think there's that. And for me, with Draft Revise in particular, I think naivete actually helped call my fears significantly. Mm-hmm. I would have been petrified if I had known what was going on yeah. when I had launched that thing, if I had known that Patrick McKenzie was going to be paying attention. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea. And that probably helped me tremendously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and there's obviously, I, I know I have a few people listening that are going to be like, You're, it all, it just all seems like luck. It's just like, you know, like Nick just got lucky. And there is obviously an element to that, but there must have been all of these other things like Patrick somehow was clued into you as a person before this. I'm not sure how that happened uh, or what you'd done before. I'm not sure if, did Cadence and Slang come yeah. out before this? Yes, in 2009. Okay, so yes. so 2009, yes. that's that's one step that maybe we haven't talked about yet. You and, did a Kickstarter for a book, right? Right, and so this is a very good example of this. So I was the like 18 or 19th project ever on Kickstarter. Oh, wow. And I wouldn't... I would not have found out about Kickstarter, and I still had a full-time job at this point. I wrote a book about interaction design. It sold, I think, 3,800 copies at this point, some crazy high number. It's great. Wow. Um, it's been, you know, it got me a keynote slot at South By the year after, and it, it did really, really well for my career. I would not have found, I would not have published Cadence and Slang if I had not found out about Kickstarter, and I would not have found out about Kickstarter's existence if I hadn't met Charles Adler when he worked for my college radio station in 2003 (laughs) so if i hadn't gotten into techno in like 1998 (laughs) i'm i'm so deadly serious about this the butterfly over there flapped its wings 
put me in front of this guy whom I only knew because he also liked techno. And we talked about Detroit techno for two years. And then I graduated. I ended up in his address book when he sprayed the announcement. Hey, I have a new website, kickstarter.com to literally everyone on his address book that he has ever encountered. And I'm like, this seems cool. And I have a terrible manuscript together. Let's see what I can do with it. Wow. And, and I launched it and it turned out that I made, well, I don't even remember like it five, no, five figures at least, but something like that. It yeah. did well. Yeah. And th- there was so much butterfly wing flapping that had to go into that. Yeah. And then that formed the groundwork for me starting to speak more frequently and get a reputation for myself such that I could develop enough relationships that I could feel comfortable quitting my job. Then I quit my job, didn't know what I was doing there, met Amy Hoy, who was a fan of my book in 2010. And she said, you should quit your job. And I'm like, I already did. She's like, great. Here's Bacon Biz Conf. And I met all the bootstrapper people. Yeah. And I think that's probably how we know each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't know. Get into computers and then wait 20 years. I, <laughs> the whole point is that I got lucky, but I also made my luck. Yeah. And part of the making the, of the luck, if there's one thing that keeps coming up, in all of these stories, it's all relationships. So if you had stayed in your house and never gone to a rave or never gotten into techno or never talked to anybody, uh, you would have not had those opportunities. But being open to relationships, getting out of your house and meeting some people, uh, investing in community and uh, and relationships is one way to create your own luck. And the more, and every story has these things, and it's almost like always the pivotal moments all hinge on some sort of relationship. And if you yeah. don't have those, it's going to be really, <laughs> it's going to be a lot harder. Like the, even if you have an incredible amount of skill and, uh, you know, an incredible idea. You really do need to have people in your life um, that can help you make those jumps, right? Have you ever heard of – this is going to sound like a jump, but I'm going to bring it back. Have you ever heard of the Harvard Grant Study at all? No. Okay. This is amazing, and you should look it up. It is uh, basically this one um, sociologist researcher at Harvard – uh, said, okay, the entire class of 1939, I think, something like this, we're going to keep tabs on you for the rest of your life. I have and heard of this. Ev- yeah, keep going. This is every, great. Every year you got to check in, talk about your health, talk about how you're doing. There are like multiple presidents in here, like Kennedy was in there, I think. Wow. Um, there are multiple like congressmen, because it's Harvard, right? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And so all these, all these people, but like, because it was essentially, a, um, I mean, quote unquote, random sampling, it's still Harvard, but, you know, it's a very broad sampling of effectively randomly selected people who didn't know they were going to be in the study, only that they were going to Harvard. Yeah. You end up with a very broad range of, of outcomes. You have people who um, died alone, who uh, were surrounded by their loved ones. You have people who lapsed into alcoholism and never recovered. You have people who became president, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the number one consistent thing that happened in the grant study, which is still going on, huh. uh, it ends when all of the people from the class of 1939 die. 
Um, wow. And it has been passed among multiple researchers who have made it their life's focus and their career's focus at Harvard to check in on these people and amass this file. Um, like people, you know, take care of it for 30 years and then retire mm-hmm. or die. Um, the number one consistent thing was relationships. It was making sure that you have a community of people that surround you. Mm-hmm. And this has almost nothing to do with business at this point. This is how to life correctly. If yeah. you want to do your life correctly, you need to make sure that you are doing everything you can to burn as few bridges as possible and nurture the relationships that are around you. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to, if you have a personality that's liable to isolate yourself, or um, be a firebrand or a shitster or something. Yeah, you're not. It's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a lone wolf. I have I I hang out with my dog all day and snuggle him, and I have one employee, mm-hmm. and I'm basically the definition of like a loner in my career. But I still so strongly believe that having these relationships is so important. Yeah, and. Yeah. Start now, and then in ten years, you're going to have multiple books published, and you'll be running a consultancy. <laughs> uh, it does really help. It does really help. Let's um, let's dig into some money here. Um, sure. We've we've kind of painted the picture of, um, and I like this because I think we've identified already some key things that played into this business you're running. And again, the people that are listening to this, they didn't come here for relationship advice, but that's actually the, that's, that's the ball, that's what you need to be focusing on to get the results, but they want to know about the results too. So can you, can, can, can you paint a picture of maybe even like what it was like your first year freelancing in 2012 and how that's grown over time? 2012, I made about $47,000 off of my, uh, and keep in mind that this started in February, so it's an 11-month period, mm-hmm. um, but still, 47 is not that great. Um, and Draft, uh, our bank account had $21 in it uh, for a six-day period in November of that year. Um, I ended up closing a deal with uh, to redesign Chicago Magazine, which is a local lifestyle magazine similar to New York Mag. Um and I did that in December, and that basically saved the business. Uh, I was still flitting around feast or famine from project to project. Uh, 2013, I made uh, 87000 and that was almost entirely due to the success of Draft Revise. Uh, and then 2014 and 15, I made somewhere in the, the range of 128 to 130 something like that, um, which is like, you know, after, after health insurance and stuff like a decent – upper middle class salary and these, like, these uh, are all, these are all revenue numbers too right these are revenue so that yeah. is pre-tax pre-health insurance pre-401k which i was you know filling up and everything mm-hmm. yeah um my retirement accounts are still extremely far behind what they should be for a person of my age however i own a house mm-hmm. um and that was a deliberate and intentional choice that i made uh in 2016 2015, I made 160, and that was enough to think, hey, I can't afford a down payment on a house. Uh, then in 2016, I made 238 to account for the fact that I made a really stupid decision and bought a house. <laughs> um, and I worked my ass off, and uh, never again. And this year, I am deliberately making less money. I'm on track. We're recording this at the end of September. I'm on track to make about 
170, 180, depending on whether one of my clients renews. Um, and, and I feel very comfortable about that. We have 150 in the bank right now. I have broken even on expenses for 2017. Uh, so everything after this is gravy income, which I'm going to use to pay down my home equity loan. Um, wow. So this is just the boring quotidian stuff that goes into into the business. Like it's been going very well. Um mm-hmm enough that I can eat well and travel well and snuggle a dog. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. That was a really great picture. I love, even if we go back to 2012 and there, there's, um, I'll, I'll just repeat those numbers again and make sure I've got them right. It's like for around 47,000 in 2012, around 81,000 in 2013, 128 in 2014, 160 yes. in 2015, 238 yes. in 2016. And if you if you look at that, the the one thing that again has come up over and over again is in most cases, especially people who have quit their job, that first year is really hard. <laughs> like so so <laughs> it's it is bad, and I did not like it. Yeah, <laughs> I do not want to have that happen to me again. <laughs> and and so much of this hinges on, um, you know, my first year independent. So I did consulting in 2014 and 15, and then my first year kind of just relying on products was 2016. And what a lot of people don't know about that year is that in June, I had a similar moment to you of like, if I don't get this magazine redesign job, for me, it wasn't that. But if I don't get this, like, this is done. Like, I'm screwed. And then um, I had a AppSumo deal that ended up just doing really well and kind of saving, <laughs> saving the business. And so there's these hinging things that folks need to understand. It's going to be really, really, really hard the encouraging thing for you was that in 2013, um, that's when you started Draft Revise, you did 81000 yes. You almost doubled your revenue. And mm-hmm. I think if you had gone, if it was like 2012, 47, 2030, 50, 2014, 55. Unsustainable. Wouldn't the, have happened. Yeah, the, the, tr- the trend is, is, is a bit worrisome there. But if you can work at it for one or two years and then have, you know, uh, some movement in the right direction, I think that's a sign of, okay, keep going. But again, I'm, I'm trying to talk to the folks right now that are maybe have started and, um, you know, aren't super profitable right now. That there, yeah. there, there is a tricky piece where you have to evaluate these things. And if, you're, if your expenses are $30,000 a year and you're having the time of your life, um, then keep making 47. That's, that's awesome. But if you are married with kids and you live in New York City, uh, you know, it, it's probably time to, <laughs> to reevaluate. Probably a higher cost of living uh, <laughs> to have a like comfortable quality of life in New York City, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, sorry, did you I'm want sorry? to say anything on any of that? Because I've got, my next question is going to be about how um, the fact that you've got $150,000 in the bank is quite interesting to me. And I want to know how you were able to, to save that and, and what the thinking behind that was. But anything about what we've just talked about that you want to just add on? Oh, 
the 150 was what I've made in 2017 so far. Oh, that is okay. not the amount of money I currently have in the bank. Oh, okay. um, gotcha. I'm using it to pay down my loans. Gotcha. Uh, I have less than that in the bank. Gotcha. Uh, but enough for enough runway for enough months that I feel comfortable. So. How, how much runway do you keep in the bank? What's what's kind of your goal there? Goal is six months. Uh, it's currently eight, something like that. Like worst case goal is six. Mm-hmm. I mean, the longer the better, right? Like I, I would love nothing more than if all of my fi- clients fired me, I just shrugged and found a way to make more money. Like, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of the position that I'm in right now. Like that would be like, cool sabbatical three day weekend, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> drink some beer on the beach. Like that's awesome. Um, I think and not have a panic attack. Yeah. And, and is there, cause I've found, I've been trying to keep three in the bank. And what I've noticed is that three is really not enough because, for example, I just paid my corporate taxes and I paid them once a year. If Revenue Canada is listening to this, just don't listen right now. I don't know why. They, they should be getting me to pay monthly installments, but they haven't yet. And so I pay it once a year. And when I pay it, that three-month buffer goes down to like nothing. All of a sudden, I've got nothing in the bank. And, and that's terrifying. And that's yeah. terrifying. And so... How did you choose six? Was that was that trial and error, or you just felt like this is the right place? And and when you say six months, that's six months living expenses in the bank. This is six months of everything. So what I do is I use an app called Solver. Uh, it's you can use any app you want, but basically I have it in there where I write down all of my expenses. And people are like, oh, so like your your mortgage for the month? No, all of my expenses. Oh, so also your payroll and utilities? No, all of my expenses. I have divided the cost of my passport by 120 months <laughs> and put it in there with a renew date specified. Wow. I have put in the cost, ev- all of them. I have Nick Felton'd my expenses. <laughs> and, it, and at the very bottom right of the Solver file is a number. That number times six. Yeah. And, and okay, so the, uh, to answer your original question, why six? That was the number that I reached after I built up that number and started feeling okay about my business. Mm, yeah. It was entirely personal feelings and thinking like all of the stuff I have to account for in my life, the fact that I am making three-fourths of the cash income of this household. Mm -hmm. So my partner, who works the most amazing job in the world and is the secret badass in my relationship, if I lose my job, we cannot rely on her income alone, Mm -hmm. right? So fine, that's not a problem. I don't feel any resentment or, you know, difficulty about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, keeping in mind, like... I, I am the one that has to comp all of these things because the mortgage comes out of draft. My salary comes out of draft. The health insurance comes out of her, which is merciful and good. Awesome. Um, for now, right? Mm-hmm. That could change. That has changed. Um, but, you know, like looking at all of the things and also the quality of life that we want to be having. How often am I taking a giant international trip? Well, I'm going to Copenhagen in six weeks, so do the math. You mm-hmm. know, like... Mm-hmm. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things, they go into this file. And I realized like, I have a tremendous amount of responsibility to this household, to my partner and my dog and my friends to not screw this up. Mm -hmm. 
how much do I feel comfortable if everybody fired me today that I would be like, I've got this. Mm-hmm. And I realized after a lot of like personal conversations with my friends, a lot of journaling, a lot of talking with my therapist, it was six months. Hmm. And, and, and how, that's just feeling. Yeah. And how yeah. long did it take? Because this is really a big part of what this conversation is about, because really profit is money that you get to keep in the business for whatever. It could be six months reserve. It could be 12 months reserve. It could be money for growth. It could be money to hire somebody. It could be money, like instead of investing in the stock market, your business is making 15% return and you just think that's a better place to put your money. It could be any of those things, right? How long did it take you to get to six months after you'd started draft revise in 2013? Uh, so that's an interesting question because I bought a house in the middle of all of this. Um, I got to six months, uh, in about nine months after draft revise launched. Um, but in the middle of that, I took on too many clients and burned out, which was bad, Mm -hmm. uh, and had to raise my rates, which was good. And then I got fewer clients, which turned out to be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I fought really hard during that period. Uh, it took about nine months. And then I started building up a cash cushion and made more money in profit than anyone has any right to. Mm-hmm. And I bought a house. <laughs> uh, then I dwindled down to about three months of cushion. And it took me about nine months after buying the house to rebuild that. And you have to keep in mind that that's in draft 2016 levels when I'm charging way more money for draft revised and taking on way fewer people. Mm-hmm. So there was actually higher risk in that situation because if you lose one client, you're using a, losing a larger percentage of your monthly recurring revenue, which is hugely problematic for cash flow reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I got fired by my biggest client two weeks after I closed on the house. Oh, man. Yeah. So that probably would have been fewer than nine months if it, if it hadn't happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, um, is, there is yeah that kind of stress... But I think what is, and obviously that's the, I'm glad you mentioned this too, because there's fluctuations with all of this, just like in regular life uh, and even more so in a business. Like if you're working for IBM and you're regularly getting a $10,000 a month paycheck, then that is going to feel a lot more um, uh, reliable, now it might not be. You get comfortable. You get comfortable. Yeah. But there and it might be a false sense of comfort, but that false sense of comfort is actually pretty good for the brain. <laughs> because it because the stress is what kills you, right? Yeah. So there I think the other thing people need to recognize is the other trend that's come up is that it doesn't matter if you have 6 months cash in the bank, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars cash in the bank. Every single person I've talked to who has their own business, they think a little bit about what if this all goes away and there's always some fear because they know it fluctuates, right? I I brought this up to my therapist last week. (laughs) Last week, I did my best. Draft did its first like mid five figure week because of consulting revenue all hitting at like roughly the same time. And the week after I'm in my therapist's office and I'm like, desperately worried about my business failing 
And he's like, well, okay, well, let's like lay it out. What What's the source of the problem here? And he, he's thinking like, I lost a bunch of clients or whatever have you. And I'm like, well, actually I'm, you know, in the middle of my next, my fifth book, lol. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, you know, everybody that I talk to about it is like jaw on the floor. Like, please let like, me get access to the secret pre-order page. And so it's probably going to do well. And, and I've gotten all these clients and he's like, you know, everything you just told me is like, you're doing really great with your business. And actually the past like six months I've been seeing you, you've been doing really great with your business. So what's the problem? And I, and I'm just there like, (laughs) it's, I don't know. Now that you lay it out like that, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's that I'm, well, this is the problem, right? It's like why I'm yelling in the middle distance at my therapist about this. Yeah. Because I don't know why I should. Maslow's hierarchy tells me that I'm like close to the tip of the pyramid. Yeah. I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. So what's the problem, dumb brain Nick D? Yeah. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's this lizard brain imposter syndrome nonsense that you have to beat back no matter what level you're at. Yeah. Totally. It never goes away. It never goes away. And I I think folks do need to to be prepared for that. Like the the um, the the opposite is also a problem, which is this kind of gritty, um, I'm going to do whatever it takes. This doesn't phase me. Like if you're not, if you don't have the fear, I'm also a little bit concerned for, <laughs> for you because yes, there is a danger and a risk in business. That's the whole thing. That's the, that, <laughs> that's how it works. And if you're, if you're, um, not scared, then there's also there's also a problem. If you're listening to this right now and you're not profitable and you're just kind of delusional, like, oh, it's going to be fine, like, you, you probably need to see your a therapist. Um, and actually, let's, let's, let's talk about that because I don't want to actually make light of that because I've just started going to therapy. No, as, no, no. Therapy as well. Um, I, how often do you go, by the way? Do you go every week, every month? What, what's your cadence? Uh, currently once a month, it has been as frequently as thrice a week. Okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, and but I, that's, I'm doing pretty okay right now. So yeah. 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 And so, and I pay about a hundred dollars an hour to see my therapist. Is it close for you? Is it about that kind of investment? I think pre-insurance, it's like 120, 130 because my insurance covers it, which okay. is amazing. But I do a $20 copay for each session, which like, that's great. Yeah. Um, but I think in practice, and in the United States, you should expect to pay somewhere between 90 and 150 an hour for a therapist, depending on like how fancy they are and how many degrees they have. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, and I, I'm just, I just pay for it outright. Um, I ha- sure. we, we have free health insurance in Canada, but it doesn't cover... Uh, mental health, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah. But I just think for me, it's been an incredible investment. And um, not just for my business, but I'll, I'll talk about the business part. If you're a founder, especially a solo founder, <laughs> it's everything relies on your sanity. It all relies on your emotional um, and mental well-being. And uh, this is something that Nathan Barry actually it was kind of Nathan that got me into this because I was very kind of anti therapy for a long time, not anti but anti in the way that my dad is like nah i 'll never do that you know um, like not for me type thing. yeah not yeah. F- not for me, and I think uh, my more, my advice to founders would be 
you should get a therapist right away and it should be a real person like that you actually meet in their office. And even if there's nothing going wrong, I think once a month is kind of a good like just base. You invest in um, software for you know accounting and for project management and all that other stuff. Like you pay $99 a month for Basecamp. If if your brain and or your soul or whatever, if they explode, that's worth a lot more than $99 a month, right? That's true. And I'm going to add on to this also. Um, if you uh, haven't read The Personal MBA by Josh Kaufman, do it. It's amazing. It's one of the only good business books. I hate most business books. This <laughs> one is good. And he spends a good fourth to third of it talking about personal health. Like the best thing you can do for your business is like exercise and diet. Like the whole thing that everybody's been telling you for your whole life that you've been screwing up exercise and diet. Um, don't go out drinking every night, like spend some time meditating. Like I cannot agree more with the, the dovetail between living a healthy lifestyle and performing well in business. Mm -hmm. Like, And I know people are coming into this expecting like, here's how you run a mailing list that's liable to convert. You can get that advice a dime a dozen. It -hmm. doesn't matter worth anything if you're not healthy. Mm -hmm. So that's like the biggest thing that I can recommend to people is like not just therapist, but it's all of a piece, right? Yeah. And, And this stuff actually does matter. I think what's been interesting about these conversations is um, and yours has definitely been more, um, yours has definitely been maybe like softer, this interview so far, but I'm really glad we've covered this. I know we, we could have gone into the weeds of um, kind of like really technical, like, you know, here's some things you do. And I mean, you do have that solver file, which is very, very kind of tactical. Sure. But, but this piece here actually does matter. And it's the piece that we are often inclined to ignore. And I'm speaking from experience. I'm, I'm the guy that's like, come on, like just, I, I don't, I'm just a haggard, grinded out kind of guy. It really matters. It, so if you're not profitable right now, or you're struggling, or you want to get more profitable, but you're at the office from six in the morning till six at night, um, how, how many hours do you work a day, by the way? five six <laughs> i don't count this as work i spend most of my day cooking and and walking my dog yeah. uh and then I, I sit on slack like after this i'm gonna open up slack and make sure nobody's websites burned down yeah but uh if they didn't i'm gonna go and walk my dog yeah It'd and be great this is something that brennan dunn said to me that he he quite literally took me aside at a conference and said you know, Justin, you are working way harder than any of us. And I just want you to know that I'm working three hours a day and it's okay. <laughs> like it's, it's fine. And he, he, he's launching a new product right now. And so he was, prob- he was probably working 60 hours a week for a while. But his whole goal yeah. is to get back down to a healthy, Breathe. breathable kind of life. And... um. I know, again, like I'm from Alberta, Canada. There is nobody that likes to work more than Albertans. Trust me. 
and there is something uh, good about having a good work ethic and all that stuff. But if you are the CEO of your own company and you blow up, everything blows up. And so you got to take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I have an assistant, but it's not like there's a succession plan to hand draft off to her after I die. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that the whole thing rests on, right? Like, it's all on me. And and it's funny getting that advice from, in particular, Brennan Dunn, who I think has a reputation for executing very well and working very hard. Yeah. Nobody's going to accuse Brennan Dunn of being a slacker. Yeah. Right? Like... And and when you get that from other people, it's like, um, it's almost shocking, right, mm-hmm. to get like the self care spiel from other people who are busting their butts. Mm-hmm. And but I'm I'm gonna join in on the chorus, man. Yeah. Like that's get eight hours of sleep a night. People are like not profitable. The best thing that you can do is everything in your power to stave the panic attack. Mm-hmm. Sleep, improve your diet, exercise. Drink a lot less, if at all. Mm-hmm. Meditate and journal and start to work on your business. Mm-hmm. Those are the bits of advice that I have for you. And I know that they all sound so squishy and hippie and unactionable, but every time I do them, I end up making a lot of money. So you have to trust me about it. Yeah. I think that's a great place to leave this conversation. I really appreciate your time, Nick. This has been awesome. Awesome. Thank you for, thank you for sharing your numbers. Thank you for the, the tactical bits. I, I actually think if we can get a screenshot of that solver file, um, sure. that would be amazing for the, for the blog yeah. post. But most of all, thanks for sharing this really personal, down-to-earth advice. I think this is exactly uh, what people need to hear, and it's, it's good, great encouragement for me, too. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. So that was my conversation with Nick DeSabado. Unbelievable. If you're not already on his email newsletter, you have to get on it. It's uh, draft.nu. There's a subscription form right there on the site. Uh, I've been a subscriber for a long time, and he just writes amazing stuff. It's the kind of newsletter that shows up in my inbox and uh, I actually read it <laughs> as opposed to a lot of newsletters. So go check that out, draft.nu. And his most recent book, Draft Evidence, is also amazing. Uh, I bought the hardcover version, and it's, again, another book that I refer to again and again. Great stories, great essays. Uh, some of them came at kind of a really difficult time in my life and were really encouraging. So if you haven't read his book yet, go check it out, draft.nu slash evidence. And that's it. Uh, be sure to go to megamaker.co slash profit. If you haven't already, sign up for the rest of those case studies. See you later.